0: Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a Slate spoiler special podcast on Super 8, the new J.J. Abrams movie. Uh, Joining me in the studio and having just walked out of the movie with me is John Swansburg. Hello, John. Glad to be here. Slate's culture editor and a welcome companion on the spoiler podcast. Thanks for having me. So um, we did not pre-talk this one at all. We had a total silence, a, a vow of silence coming out of the movie.
1: Yeah, that was hard.
0: Yeah, it really we had, was. We had
1: a whole subway ride where we had to sort of, you know, think of other things besides this movie to talk about. It not might... that it's hard to have a conversation with you, Dana, but it was. I think we were, our gears were both kind of spinning, thinking about the movie, and we couldn't we couldn't share those feelings. But now we can.
0: Yes, so now we can we can unleash it. So so first of all. Can I get your overall reaction? Are you going to send people to see this? Uh,
1: yeah, I think I am. I really enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed the. I would say the first half more than the second half. Although that's that might be um, to be expected given the kind of movie this is. Um, I, you know, without giving away too much right away, I think with this kind of movie where there's a monster of some sort lurking, when you the, the moments before you see the monster are always more exciting, intense than the moments after the monster appears. And I sort of feel like the movie lost a little bit of its um, crackle once uh, it kind of kicked into the we're going to show you the monster we're going to have the kind of ending you know, we're going to re- we're going to have a series of resolutions i liked the building of the tension what is the you know what is the monster and sort of getting to know the characters i thought that part was really wonderful
0: well jj abrams you know is actually a known proponent a passionate proponent of that theory and uh, he has this whole thing he talked about it in lost interviews a lot i think called the mystery box which is the idea oh, right, that you, right. know, you you have to prolong the mystery for as long as possible which in lost to me became so mad. That I could no longer accompany the show. Okay, so we're in a a small Ohio town in 1979, the summer of 1979, in the company of five boys who are, I guess, about 13, 14 years old middle schoolers? Middle
1: schoolers, yeah, not in high school yet.
0: And they're shooting a movie on Super Eight, mm-hmm. and it's it's kind of a zombie movie. So is that the very first thing we see? Is it a film a, sh- a scene from the zombie movie? I can't remember. It's very early in the movie anyway that it's set up. Yeah, definitely. And so they've got obviously very low production values, but especially this one kid Charles, who's sort of the director, the main. Um, uh, entrepreneur behind the whole project is is really obsessed with this movie and, and getting everything exactly right.
1: Right, there's a I think there's a regional film festival that they want to enter this movie in. So they you know they're trying to create. Uh a great zombie movie, but uh, we're, we're sort of coming into at, at a moment where Charles has realized that in order to win a film festival, he needs to not just have the blood and gore that you might imagine of a, in a kind of having fun backyard movie. He's trying to add some layers of storytelling. <laughs> it's kind of a funny scene where he's like picked up a, a, a you know super eight filmmaking magazine that from which he's gleaned that you know if you have a little backstory, you feel worse when a character is eaten by the zombie. So he's kind of re- rewriting the script and introducing a love a love interest, which is how uh, we meet El uh, Fanning's character Alice. Uh, That's who,
0: actually an important lesson for. Filmmakers now to learn I try to care <laughs> about the characters before you have them eaten by zombies. Yeah, either.
1: exactly. It's it's amazing how few uh, filmmakers seem to have taken that lesson. But, but Charles' forgot- to his credit does. Sorry, go ahead.
0: I'm sorry, we just we forgot a really important thing at the setup. So somebody who's just seen the movie is probably screaming right now. You guys forgot about the mother. Of oh, course, yeah. it doesn't begin with the shooting of the movie. Right, it right. begins with this um, this this sort of flashback pre- four months before the main action of the movie. Right. Actually, in the winter of 1979, we see. Um, the scene of a steel mill in this small Ohio town. It's a really effective, I think, opening a lot of information has gotten across in this one shot. And we see this sign that says, safety first, 784 days since the last accident. And then we see this this workman ascend the ladder and change that number to one. So there's been some kind of a bad accident at the steel mill. And it turns out that one of the boys working on the film, not the main director, Charles, but his kind of sidekick assistant, uh, Joe, has lost his mother in a steel mill accident right. so that this is the setup to the beginning of the movie boy loses mother there's a, there's a lot bigger stakes than the zombie movie from the from the get-go
1: it, it made my, my heart go up in my throat a little bit seeing that you know seeing those numbers come down and the one day being put back up was was really effective.
0: So, yeah, so I, I like the way that the emotional stakes are, are established as as large at the beginning of the movie. So there's a lot more in it for Joe, this kid, in making this monster movie with his friends than just making a monster movie with his friends. It's sort of a place that he can belong. His father, who's the deputy sheriff of this small town, has not been paying much attention to him since his mother died and seems to be absorbed both by his grief and by his job. And his job is about to get a lot harder Indeed. because the town is about to be overtaken by this mystery box a knowable <laughs> being that we don't really figure out what it is until 3 quarters of the way through the movie right so as the kids are are shooting a scene at a train station, and this I, I really love the, the the filmmaking metaphors going on in this scene. Um, they're they're standing at a at a in a little sort of shack that's a, a train stop, and uh, and shooting a scene for their monster movie. And in the middle of it, a train starts to come by. Right, so- and, and
1: Charles, who's the director, gets so excited because he realizes that if they if they film this scene at the train station and there's a train going by at the same time, it will be that much more realistic. Or as he says production values, production values. So he starts when he sees the train on the horizon, he gets so excited and he gets every into place. They've been rehearsing the scene. Now he's going to, you know, have the camera roll uh, while the train is coming, and it's going to feel like a real, like a real movie. Uh, and so they start, they start shooting the scene, and uh, the train comes barreling past. And um, as the train is coming past, Joe, the the young boy we were just talking about notices in the sort of corner of his eye that they, someone is driving a pickup truck onto the train tracks, and which in turn creates this massive collision uh, between the train and, and the truck. And the train cars come flying off of the, the rails and falling here and there. And there's it's all a really big...
0: spectacular derailment. I would almost argue it's too big an action scene for this early in the movie.
1: It was pretty crazy. I mean, do trains even der- derail? Like, like, train cars were flying everywhere, blowing – I mean, we're, we're led to – Believe, or we find out later that this is, you know, a, a top secret Air Force train bearing <laughs> bearing some pretty uh, serious cargo. It may have been in a, in a, in a hurry uh, to get wherever it was going, um, so maybe it was traveling at a, a speed that we don't usually see. But this was a pretty drastic uh, train derailment, um, and there were a lot of explosions. It almost felt, yeah, like someone, uh, some studio exec was like, "We need to ramp up the explosions on the first half of this movie because the first half of the movie do- is sort of lacking in that that kind of pyrotechnics. Other than that, that scene where it seems like the world is coming." to an end, and if, but if, somehow the five kids managed to avoid uh, being killed by hot uh, metal coming off the off the rails.
0: There were some great touches in that, in that scene. I love when they, they see the blood on a piece of debris after the train wreck and think that one of them has been crushed, and it turns out it's the fake blood that they brought for their film shoot. Yeah. That was a great little detail. I just great. sort of thought that if the movie had started smaller, action wise, I mean, it would be a big enough deal if you were a 13-year-old kid shooting a movie to witness any kind of train derailment. It yeah. wouldn't have to be flaming boxcars <laughs> shooting up into the sky. Um, and and. Then we could have slowly ramped up to the action sequences later on. I just felt for, for the pacing and the rhythm of the movie that that would have made more sense.
1: Yeah, I agreed. It, it, it felt like uh, they just sort of did too much too soon. It was like it was legitimately jolting. I was worried that one of those kids wasn't going to make it because there was so much shrapnel flying around. I thought, oh, maybe maybe this is the kind of movie where you know a kid a kid will die in addition to the death of the mother, which is sort of the sort of poignant setup. But luckily, all the kids survived, and it was only the fake blood on the uh, on the metal that they found.
0: And so from then on, basically, we have two movies running parallel, right? We have the kids kind of becoming friends, um, trying to make their movie, trying to figure out what strange thing is going on in their town. And then we have the adult part of the town going completely bananas because subsequent to the train derailment, all these strange things start happening. These weird little objects have fallen off the train that look sort of like white Rubik's cubes, as one of the kids says, that we slowly find out over the course of the movie are sort of like – and here's where we get into head-scratcher spoiler territory. Yeah, this is like Transformers
1: 2 kind of stuff.
0: They're like building blocks for the alien ship.
1: There's a monster that was on the train. The monster, which the was just
0: being ta- which which was being smuggled out of some Area 51 type place, right? right by by the Air Force,
1: right. So this alien, the the backstory on the alien is, which we find out later, is the alien crashed on Earth in like 58, something like that, 59. Someone says, and he was discovered by the U.S. military, and the U.S. military clearly is like wants to, I don't know, conduct some t- tests on him, probably to figure out whether they can create a super weapon out of his technology. It's not really clear why the military. What the military is after with this with this monster? But for whatever reason, they were transferring him from Area Fifty One to Area Fifty Two or something on a train, an unguarded train, uh, and he was like in a shipping container. And the derailed uh, the train went between a...
0: this and the Ann Rand movie this summer. Trains are back big it's time. Total. Rail travel, <laughs>
1: it's the future. Why would they send a monster on, on a train? It doesn't mean – you know. With no, there was no other military personnel on the train. Like if you were the U.S. military and you had a, an alien that you knew could be like an all powerful like. You know, holy terror! If it got loose, would you just stick it on a train and send it like without like, a, some guys with guns? It doesn't that that doesn't make any sense. But anyway, the the train derails and the and this alien monster is set loose. And he kind of you know we they don't the kids don't see him at first, but he actually is captured on their on their film. But because they're taping with Super Eight film which takes two weeks to get developed it's not until later in the movie that isn't they see isn't it three
0: days Doesn't he well it's, it I it think three it's two weeks
1: but then he, he puts a rush on it so he gets it in three days and
0: that's actually that's a nice way of, of showing the time frame of the movie I will say that although I think some this movie ramps up a little bit too fast in the action scenes it's really nicely structured and yeah. the way that the story unfolds over the course of those three days that they're waiting for the film to be developed yeah definitely also a nod to the technology which as has been heavily covered in every promotion of this movie J.J. Abrams himself got his start shooting on Super 8 or 8mm the equivalent, right. and, Uh, and so does Steven Spielberg who produced this movie and apparently was quite hands-on in his production of the movie and Mm -hmm. it has in some ways a real Spielberg imprimatur on it. Oh
1: yeah, there's a lot of there are a lot of Spielberg touches that you know uh, and even just like the the look on Joe's face often felt like the look on uh, on Henry
0: Thomas isn't he right? He looks like Henry Thomas the the boy Joel Courtney who plays um, Joe Joe, the main kid yeah Yeah. he has a real Henry Thomas look although he's a little older than Henry Thomas was Yeah but when there
1: were certain shots when we were focusing on on Joe that I was like I just was like transported back to back to Um, E.T.
0: this is a complete sidebar, but the camera work in this movie really bothered me and I felt like it was very un-Spielbergian and just sort of un cinematic in some way. I don't know if this drives you as crazy, but J.J. Abrams does this a lot and it's a very television thing is that his camera is constantly moving and mm. it's not moving in a particularly creative way. It's basically just going to the part of the shot that you're supposed to think about. So he's always kind of either tracking in on someone's face or right. tracking out to show you the full extent of the horror, like constantly, constantly moving. And I feel like Spielberg didn't do that as much. You know, Spielberg has a more kind of poetic way in movies like E.T. of kind of letting you look at something and, and decide what to feel about it. Right. And J.J. And Abrams feels a little bit grab be to me as a director, like look over here, look over there. It's almost like the Ken Burns effect, you know, his yeah, shots.
1: Right? Yeah, totally. He, maybe he could have learned something from uh, from Charles. who was a much more a bigger fan of the of the static shot in, <laughs> yeah. uh, in the movie that they make, which we get to see at the very end of the movie. Uh, folks should, you know, who go to see this should stick around through the credits because in the end, the very end of the movie, uh, we get to watch. The zombie movie that the kids have been making throughout the movie, which is a, which is a real treat, um, and that movie in, in some ways is just as entertaining as the one you've just watched.
0: So yeah, I want to talk about the big finish and why to me the big finish was was really a letdown—the last action scene. But first, I want to say a couple things that I liked about the movie. So we're not just trashing yeah. it the whole time. I mean, I definitely think if people want to go see a summer movie, they should see Super Eight. I think yeah. it's one of the better of the big popcorn movies this summer that I've seen so far. Definitely for a kid, a teenager, or or young adult, I think it's like it's great for that for that age group. Um, I'm not sure I would take a really little kid because it's got some, some scary intense stuff in it there's some
1: colorful language no, the in dead it. mother I
0: mean to begin <laughs> De- with dead
1: mother colorful language some serious like um, explosions yeah. now, if,
0: if your kid can handle Drew Barrymore saying penis breath in, in E.T. <laughs> 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 I think they can handle the language in this movie I think that's fair but the, the interplay between the kids, is among the kids, all of the kids, is, is really great, I yeah. think, and, uh, and and really worth seeing the whole movie for. And at certain moments, I was almost kind of distracted, like, do we have to care about the military and the aliens? You know, I just want to <laughs> be back in the kids' bedroom with their repartee and, and conversations. People are comparing this to the Goonies in terms of the kids' interactions. I actually liked it better. I found all the kids in the Goonies a little bit, the dynamics were all kind of the same. You yeah. know, they're all at top volume all the time. Right. Um, but but these kids are nicely modulated. They have different kind of styles, and, and Elle Fanning just walks away with, every scene she's in.
1: Yeah, she's great. And I totally agree. I thought the chemistry between the kids is great. Charles is, you know, he's the auteur. He has this vision for the movie he wants to make. He's, he's kind of a – he's pretty bossy. Uh, he has great catchphrases when, he, when he's excited about something, uh, like a shot. He's oh, that's mint. That's mint. And I just kept saying that over, throughout the movie. I uh, I thought that was really great. And Joe is, is meeker but uh, sort of learns to, over the course of the movie to kind of hold his own and, and become a, a sort of uh, – a better partner for Charles. He doesn't let Charles kind of walk all over him. I and then love they... that
0: late in the game revelation that they both like Alice, the girl that Elle Fanning plays, right? Because we've seen her develop this kind of puppy love thing with Joe, the main boy, right? And then we're completely blindsided midway through the movie by Charles suddenly getting really mad at Joe, and we don't know what it's about. We think it's something about the movie, and then he says, "No, I like Alice too." And that really reminded me of the way actual, you know, sort of relationship dynamics in middle school would unfold.
1: I agree. It was great, and I was completely surprised by it because Charles doesn't let on at all. He's he when he tells Joe originally that he's recruited Alice he makes it seem like oh I did that because I really I thought having a woman having a love interest would really you know help the movie which I think you know he does believe that but he also clearly wanted to you know have an excuse to spend time with her and he also, there's also this wonderfully honest line that Charles says where you know Joe's like I'm sorry that I that I like the girl that you like and he says you know it's not really that that you you like her too it's that she likes you back that's what really bothers me right. <laughs> which is like actually it was a kind of an amazing line for a kid to say um, and you know but those two sort of men fences after that conversation there, there's a, there was a real kind of maturity about that conversation that was uh, was really wonderful.
0: Well, I love that about the, the kid group is that all the kids have, have flaws, right? All the kids yeah. are annoying and kind of some, sometimes mean to the other kids or whatever, but there's not a bad guy among the kids or even really someone who has to learn any particular lesson. They're all sort of, you know, just trying to get by and survive. Right. There's another really funny kid who's referred to at, at one point by Charles as Chompers. Right. I can't remember the character's name, but he's this kid with hilarious giant teeth with braces Huge on Huge braces. Who's kind of a pyromaniac. Yeah, he's and,
1: always blowing up firecrackers, which, of course, you know, come in handy later at the at the end of the movie. So
0: the way things have gone down by the, the end, just to set up the end, we don't need to go, get into everything in between, but uh, there's been an evacuation of the town, right? right. Basically, a fire was set to get everybody out of town by the military, and everybody's been herded to this very George Romero-style like holding area outside of town, right? right? But because Alice, Elle Fanning's character, has been snatched by the creature and taken away, um, Joe rounds up the kids. This is very E.T. style, right? And, right. Uh, and they all managed to escape from this this holding area to try to go back to the town to find Alice and save her from the monster.
1: Right. And meanwhile, the monster has been running amok in town. The, the monster has been – weird things have been happening and the monster has been snatching people. The monster has been uh, like running around stealing engines out of cars and stealing microwaves and just like generally causing havoc. But we haven't really seen him. We don't really know – what his purpose – like what, what he's up to. Until the very end, then we find out he's trying to rebuild his spaceship so he can go home.
0: Right. So all this time he's been like stealing microwaves from stores and all these weird objects that he's been squirreling away. I guess it turns out to be under in this subterranean tunnel underneath the water tower of the town. Yes. And uh, and the purpose is to to build a ship to go back to his planet. Right. And, and I guess – although and I don't know how – um, the kids know that the girl's still going to be alive because then we get to the lair finally they get to the underground lair with this big huge workshop where the, the ship is being built by the monster and there are all these people in this very eerie image hanging upside down sort of like the way a spider would hang its prey yeah right? and in
1: fact it looks like some of them are, even look like they have like a wrapped like, in a web or something in a web, like that yeah.
0: And uh, but but apparently he's just kind of storing them right for for future food. So so El is still alive, and they save her and a couple of other people. They all start to make their way out, and then here's where I'm completely confused about just factually what's supposed to be happening, right? Okay. So they get out of the subterranean tunnel, and everything at this point, everything in town, like all the machinery and and all this, um, I don't know, sort of metal like equipment is being pulled as if by a tractor beam to the water tower. Right.
1: It's like the water tower has become um, like a a huge magnet. So anything metal is getting sucked onto the water tower.
0: But why didn't – okay, so here's one of my – and then basically over a long um, series of shots that are supposed to, I think, sort of evoke like the end of Close Encounters kind of feeling, right? The town is all staring up odd into the night sky as this water tower turns itself into a spaceship and takes off into outer space, right? Mm -hmm. But – why didn't the monster just do that before? I mean, if it was always in his power to just activate a tractor beam and build the ship and take off, I mean, it, when you lo- saw that workshop underground, it looked like things were still at a fairly preliminary stage. <laughs> like, why did he pull it together at that moment and suddenly be able to take off into outer space?
1: I mean, I have no—I don't have a good answer. Was it
0: because of the pep talk that Joe gave? Well,
1: him? that's the thing. Yeah. So the, the part that you left out is that what Joe and the kids like—they they spirit away all the people who've been who uh, were being hoarded by the monster, but then the monster ends up catching them before they can get out of the cave.
0: And it's the first time you really see him close up at this point, which is right. very J.J. Abrams too. Like I've gotten vague glimpses of a monster and now I finally see him close up. And all of J.J. Abrams' monsters always look the same. Yeah. It's They're like, always like these kind of big reptilian. I mean I guess maybe all movie monsters have kind of looked the same since Alien or something. But yeah. I find movie monsters kind of boring. This, this one style. had a sort
1: of like an arachnid thing going on. Like its face was was familiar as of like as an alien face but it was sort of attached to like a
0: A spider like, body, like, a, like right. a sort of like
1: um which would make tarantula it's
0: prey, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Although the th- one question that I had, not to not to uh, table your, your good question is one thing that's kind of funny is you see this this monster is like it looks like a huge spider, and yet, and it it and it's like a savage beast. You know, it like runs around like just being – like acting in a really savage fashion and yet it clearly possesses an incredible technology which is like – that, which allows interstellar space travel. It doesn't – it seems to lack intelligence almost. You know, it doesn't – I guess it, it, we're supposed to believe that it um, communicates telepathically to some degree because it picks up Joe and Joe is sort of able to kind of tell him we're, the, we're good, don't eat us, go home, which the uh, alien – uh, obliges,
0: and El Fanning also says that when it touched her, she was became aware of its sentience, and you know, basically, it sort of communicated its need to go home to right. her in some telepathic it's way. It's just
1: a little hard to imagine this giant spider building a spaceship, right? <laughs> like, you know, maybe it comes like, where's a... his
0: opposable thumbs?
1: Right, yeah. I just, I, I just don't understand how it how it happened. There's no explanation for like what he was doing with it. It almost seems like you know he needed a certain number of microwaves and like Chevy engines to like make it make it happen. But like you said, when we encounter him first in the cave, it seems like he's kind of far away from building. The thing. I
0: just what, – what was he – he breaks out of the train from Area 51. What is he doing all that time? Then he oh, I'll go on a rampage here, a rampage there, grab a couple microwaves. If he was <laughs> always able to activate the tractor beam and turn the water tower into a spaceship, why not just get right to it?
1: Yeah. I mean he does – I guess one thing he does accomplish is he avenges or he he, he kills the, the sort of military guys who have been doing these cruel experiments on him. So maybe he was sticking around long enough to – Take out the like baddies, right? And then he, like
0: Noah Emmerich, namely, who's like the, yeah. the guy with. Even if you don't think you know who Noah Emmerich is, you do. <laughs> you He's like this do. guy with pitted skin who always plays the kind of military bad guy.
1: Yeah, so he he meets he meets his maker, courtesy of the aliens. And maybe he was just around to exact revenge. I don't know. It doesn't doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, I mean, for for reasons like that, like it, it just sort of the movie kind of falls apart a little bit at the end. Like they, also when the kids are running at the end to try to um, get to the underground lair. And uh, all the military equipment starts um, sort of all the tanks and guns start firing um, for no apparent reason. Like there's like is there's the a,
0: monster causing that to happen?
1: It's like there's no explanation for that. It, it, it like it seems like again, it's like well, well we want to have more fire, in, more explosions, more fireworks here. So like we'll make it so that the tanks will all start firing spontaneously. They're not firing at anything. And one you know military guy complains like sir the guns are just firing on their own. We're like why were they firing on their own? You know it wasn't that wasn't a function of the of the water tower effect yet, seemingly. I don't know. Maybe it was.
0: When I say that the initial train derailment was too much, I mean, maybe that's how the final scene gets ratcheted up into so much kind of action that it doesn't make any sense anymore. I think, in general, this movie had something of a a scale problem, you know, because everything that happened on a smaller scale was great. And the idea that things would slowly ratchet up to a huge scale was really scary. But it seemed like there was too much of a need to have... An intense, spectacular action scene every 15 minutes. Yeah. And as a result, toward the end, I mean, we're supposed to have a sort of, as I say, I think Close Encounters feeling about that moment when they're all watching the the spaceship ascend into the sky. But when you think about the end of Close Encounters, I haven't seen it in a long time, but it had such a, it just felt like the whole movie had been, had been moving inevitably toward that moment. It's a really beautiful ending, right? right? And Spielberg in general is really, really good at endings, right? Yeah. And at sort of making everything seem to converge toward the ending. And this had more of that, unfortunately, that kind of, classic summer action movie Transformers problem of getting so big that, you know, it just experiences bloat and at the end you don't care anymore. I mean, I
1: don't – yeah, and I also just – I don't care about this alien that much. You know what I mean? Like we're kind of clearly meant to believe that this alien is like a good-hearted alien who – is only behaving in this savage manner because it was mistreated by these military guys. That he, at heart, he's a he. Reco- when he when he picks up a child in his talon and, and communes with it telepathically, like he he recognizes goodness. But like, which is all fine. But I don't. I'm not like, yeah, the alien's gonna go home, you know, and and you know, the town in Ohio is gonna gonna recover. Like it'll be it'll be great. I you know, I'm glad for the individual characters that that you know that the, the uh, Joe and his father are reunited. Uh, Alice and her father are reunited. Alice's father and Joe's father you <laughs> make peace which we won't get into why they were fighting but you know the, the the human effect of the alien having been there and leaving is nice but the actual looking up into the sky watching the alien go yeah it didn't it didn't feel like um, I didn't I didn't have a real emotional response to that
0: to the extent that I didn't think that should have been the end of the movie the very last shot is of the the light disappearing into the sky of the alien taking off with this kind of triumphant music which fine if that was the beat before the end right but then I thought well I mean we do get the movie during the credits so that's sort of you know going back small again but I thought we were going to have like the first day of school the next school year and the kids bragging about their summer awesome summer or something like that that we were going to see the kids at the end who we care about and not the alien
1: right having the alien be the last beat makes it seem like it's a movie about aliens when really it's a movie about small town america for the most part and not coming back to that is is a little strange what did you think about so at one of the last moments is all the metal uh, in town is being sucked to the water tower because it's turned into this magnet for whatever reason that we don't know and Throughout the movie, um, the character of Joe is carried with him a locket uh, in which is, uh, is held a, a photograph of him as a baby with his mother, and it's obviously it's a you know it's a token of of his um, sense of loss of his mother, and he he refers to it often. At one point, it's taken away from him by a baddie, and he gets it back, and uh, it's because it's metal, it too is getting sucked towards the uh, the giant water tower slash magnet, and we see it's kind of his hand is out, and the the locket is being pulled from his hands, and then. It seems like he lets it go, and it, it joins all the other scrap metal <laughs> that's getting sucked to the water tower. Did you think that that was sort of a, a poetic moment, or just sort of like a little cheesy? Yeah,
0: I mean, maybe it, it, I, it, I probably could have gotten with that moment if I wasn't kind of irritated with the whole last scene. Yeah. But no, I thought that was hokey. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that... a lot of the stuff about grieving for the mother is great, and even the way the locket is used—you know—it's a little hokey that he's always carrying the locket and getting it out at, at significant moments. But it's a way of signaling the mother's presence without him having to say, "I miss my mother right now." Right. Right. But I did think it was too hokey having to see, it, especially because the locket. It comes open and you have to see a picture of the mother yeah. and the kid. And I just thought it was a little bit hammer, hammer. I
1: agree. I, I, the moment I did like with the, with uh, evoking the loss of the mother was at one point um, Alice has sort of snuck over to Joe's house at night and they're kind of just chatting uh, in his bedroom and the power has gone out. And then all of a sudden the power comes back on. And we learn that before Alice has come over, Joe has been watching old home video of his mother or of Super Eight he, actually Super Eight film of his uh, of his mother playing with him when he was a baby, and the two children watch this video this uh, home film of this of this woman who who's not in the movie who's 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 died and I thought that was actually really powerful I liked that it tied in the Super 8 thing like there was a, it was another ver- use of, of home video home film um, that sort of echoed the the home film plot but that you know was tied in with a, with a sense of loss and
0: uh, oh and Elle Fanning also just tears it up in that scene oh, she's She she's like did you scene. cry in that no, I scene I was when close. she cried
1: I was close but I, I didn't quite get there but it was really affecting
0: there's two times she cries in the movie actually it's kind of interestingly recursive because the first time is fake crying in the kids movie right, right where she playing the wife of the investigator in their in their zombie movie. Uh, does this incredible? You know, basically, she blows all the kids away with her audition scene, or right. sort of, it's sort very of like very the audition take.
1: scene in Mulholland Drive. Right? I thought
0: of the same thing <laughs> yeah. exactly, where everybody suddenly realizes, wait, we're in a whole other zone here. Yeah. This person can really act, and so she does this crying in that scene and makes the other kids cry just watching it. Right. And then that was it. Was just really nice that later, without it being kind of overly, the parallelism wasn't overly marked. But then she cries for real when she watches the Super Eight movie, and I was totally crying with her.
1: Yeah. So that's like there's some really nice parallelism there, and and uh, I thought like those little touches were great.
0: All right. Well, I'm afraid we have to wrap it up. But thanks so much for coming in to discuss this movie with uh, It
1: was me. a fun movie. I, and uh, I think, people, I think it, you know, if people are trying to cool off uh, on, on what is a very hot weekend, at least in the Northeast. This, they could do a lot worse than uh, go see Super 8.
0: Yeah. I hope the malls of America are, are packed with kids watching this movie <laughs> this weekend. Our producer is Krishnan Vasudevan. Our executive producer is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens.
1: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?